Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, if you did not receive a copy of the notes when you came in, raise your hand. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. On Wednesday nights, we're taking a guided tour through the Bible. That means each Wednesday night, we study a different book of the Bible. And tonight, we come to the wonderful book of Esther. And this is a beloved book of the Bible, isn't it? Especially among those of you who are of the female persuasion. We all know Easter as the beautiful queen who saved her people. It is not uncommon to meet young people and women named Esther. She's one of the great heroines in all of history. There is much more to the book of Esther than a beauty pageant. Why is this book in the Bible? Well, it answers two questions. First, a historical question. Secondly, a theological question. The historical question is, why do the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Purim every year? The theological question is, how do I know God is there when he seems hidden and silent? Now, unless you are Jewish or are fascinated with Jewish history, you probably aren't asking the historical question, let's be honest. But everyone asks the theological question. There have been times in all of our lives when it seems like God was silent and hidden. When we don't feel God or sense God like we used to. When the heavens seem brass or the circumstances in our life are so out of control it is impossible to believe that God is still working. If you have ever felt like God was playing hide and seek with you, or that your life was so out of control God could not possibly have his hand on the wheel, then the book of Esther is for you. Let me give you some background information if I can. Esther is the twelfth and final historical book. The human penman of this book is unknown. Most of the events in this book transpire in a single year. If you're looking for the biblical chronology, it all unfolds between Ezra chapters 6 and 7, about a generation before Nehemiah returned to the land. Just a reminder, folks, the Bible is not laid out chronologically. And if you expect to read the Bible starting at Genesis and going to Revelation and for it be, to be a straight chronological timeline going through, you're going to be very confused, even in these historical books. The Bible is not laid out chronologically, it's laid out thematically. And the book of Esther closes the history of God's people in this section of the Old Testament. And if you ever find yourself confused about the chronology, consult a good study Bible. They can be very helpful. All right, the story revolves around the actions of four main characters. And if you get the characters, you get the thrust of the story. The first is King Ahasuerus. History knows him as King Xerxes. He was a king of the Persian Empire. If you remember, God's people were taken into captivity by the Babylonians by King Nebuchadnezzar. A generation later, the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so God's people came under the authority of the Persians. Now, when Cyrus was the king of Persia, he made a decree that God's people could go back to their land. They could rebuild their city, their walls, and their temple. And a few of God's people returned with Zerubbabel, but the vast majority of them stayed in the land of their captivity, and they were part of the Persian emperor. So Xerxes is a notable figure in history. Read Herodotus if you want to know more about him. He's also a notable figure in biblical history. Many of the Jews in captivity were under his rule. All right, the second character in the story is a man we know as Haman the Agagite. 
That is a strange way to describe who Haman was. He was an Agagite. The narrator wants you to know that he was an Amalekite, and even more so that he came from a particular Amalekite, a king named Agag. And that goes back to 1 Samuel 15. When we get to this part in the story, you'll want to make that cross-reference. Now, at a particular point, Haman was elevated to be the prime minister in the land of Persia. So he's the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. That's Haman. He's the villain of this story. The third character is Mordecai. And Mordecai was a Jewish man who had a low-level government job in the Persian Empire. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, just for your information, who was the king that did not kill Agag? You Bible students help me. His name was Saul. Guess what tribe he was from? Benjamin. Many years later, a Benjamite is going to come and finish the job that King Saul did not do. There's a very old history here. The final character of the story, and of course the most well-known character, is Esther. The first thing we learn about Esther is that she was raised by her cousin Mordecai, meaning that her parents likely passed away at an early age. We don't know how she lost them, but Esther's story begins with tragedy. And it would have ended in tragedy if not for the grace and providence of God. So those are the four main characters. The last note here is that this book records the institution of the Feast of Purim and the people's obligation to observe it perennially. That's a big question this book answers. All right, let's get into the theme. What's the theme of the book of Esther? It is the unseen hand of God. Though his name never appears... God's hand works all things together for his glory and the good of his people. The book of Esther is unique because you will not find God's name one time in this book. You will not even find God referenced in ten whole chapters. By the way, in Esther there is no mention of heaven or hell. There are no supernatural occurrences, at least the way that we commonly think about them. There is not even an overt reference to the word of God, prophecy, or prayer. Now that's curious that all those things would be missing from a book of the Bible. If we pick up the New York Times, we don't expect that they would mention any of those things. But when you come to 166 of divine revelation, you would expect a book about God to at least have his name in it. Now while God's name is missing from the book of Esther, his hand is all over this book. By the time you get to the end of the story and Haman is hanging on the gallows and Esther is living in his house, it is obvious that the true and living God is present and accounted for even when he seems silent and hidden. You won't find his name, but you can trace his hand. His fingerprints are all over this book. And by the way, his fingerprints are all over your life, even when you can't see it. All right, let's look at the roadmap. We're going to run through the book at a very fast pace, I hope, tonight, all right? This is one of the most fascinating dramas in all of human history, and it is a drama in three acts. Act number one, we would call it background. And someone would say, crown the queen. Look at Esther chapter 1 and verse 1, if you will. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus... This is Ahasuerus, which ranged from India, even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. So we meet the first character of the book. King Ahasuerus, history knows him 
as Xerxes. And in this chapter, he is going to host a royal feast. And for 180 days, he is going to show representatives from 127 provinces all his wealth and power and fame. Now, don't miss this. The book begins with the king displaying his glory, his power, and his fame. Hold on to that. We'll return to it later. They have a six-month-long party. And some of you thought that was your freshman year of college, I know. After six months of partying, he decides I haven't had enough, so he throws another seven-day feast for those who were in his household and helped him throw that party. And in the middle of that seven-day drunken bender, he commands his queen, a lady by the name of Vashti, to leave the party she's been hosting for the women and to come into the palace to see the men. Look at her answer in verse 11. To bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by the chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned within them. Queen Vashti, I want you to come. And she says, not on your life, pal. Now, why? Why didn't she come? Some have speculated that the king wanted her to disrobe in front of the men. We're not sure of that. Others have speculated that she was pregnant, carrying Artaxerxes, his successor. And after hosting a six-month-long party, she was tired and didn't want to come and do another royal errand. We don't know exactly why she refused to come. We just know that she refused to come, and it made the king hop in mad. His counselors only made the situation worse. They said, if word gets around to the women in Persia that the queen does not obey the king, then we're going to have a rebellion on our hands. All the ladies in the land are going to rebel against their husbands. So they sent out a decree, and this is incredibly ironic, to all the women in all the land, you must obey your husband because the queen did not obey the king. And if you do not obey your husband, the consequences will be severe. The queen has been banished from the presence of the king, and she will never return. Now, question. Was God pleased with the drunken, immature behavior of King Xerxes? Certainly not. Did he ordain these sinful actions of the king? Absolutely not. Let me ask you another question. Would he use them? Oh, you better believe he would. Enter Esther. So in chapter 1, Vashti is rejected. In chapter 2, Esther is selected. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of a king, Hezuerus, was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now, uh, it says it a little later in the passage, we won't get to it, but four years passed between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. History tells us that in those four years, the Persians went into a costly war against the Greeks. It left Xerxes broken with egg all over his face in the ancient world. It says, after those things, he remembered Vashti. This is a very human scene. The king was discouraged. He was leaking confidence. He was a failure, and he wanted what all men want in those moments, a loving wife. He had a harem of women. That was not the issue. But what he needed was a partner, a support, an encourager. He had already banished Vashti and written a royal decree, and it could not be undone. The king got lonely, and he wanted a wife. 
So his counselors came up with another bright idea. Let's have a nationwide beauty contest. Something like the Bachelor Persia edition. And the king would try out women from all over the empire. They would all be added to his harem. And one lucky winner in all of the empire would be made his queen and partner. Look at chapter three or chapter two, excuse me, verse five. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her for his own daughter. So right as word is going around the nation about this beauty pageant, we meet Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai has raised Esther since she was a little girl, and he decides she is going to go on the show. She's going to put her name in the hat. Now, he tells Esther, Esther, don't you tell anybody that you're a Jew that will be used against you. So Esther is to go into the palace, if she becomes the queen, as an undercover believer in the one true God. Now, again, we know Esther is an incredibly heroic woman, and she would become that. But her and Mordecai are not so heroic in this chapter. First of all, for Esther to enter into this contest, she has to make some terrible compromises. We have several children in here, so let me say that their date was not going to the movies, okay? Besides that, she would have to marry an unbeliever, which was forbidden by the Old Testament law. To go into the palace and live the lifestyle of the queen, she would have to compromise on dietary restrictions and Old Testament laws that when Daniel and his three friends were put in a similar condition, they would not make those compromises. Esther and Mordecai made some terrible decisions that put them in the position that they were in. Now, out of all the girls in all the empire, you know the story. Xerxes chose Esther. Coincidence. I think not. Now, God did not write a message on the wall for Xerxes, thou shalt choose Esther. There was no mini, mini, tiki, you farsen this time, okay? Neither did he break the noses of all the other girls in Persia, so Esther would be the only pretty girl left, okay? But the Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, right? God worked in hidden and silent ways to ensure that Esther was chosen as the queen of Persia because he had something for Esther to do for him. Now let's step back again because this is a major part of the message of this book. Did God ordain that Esther and Mordecai would compromise the ways that they compromised? Did God want them to compromise in those ways? No and no. Did God ordain that Xerxes would have this incredibly foolish beauty pageant? Is that the way a man should find a wife? Certainly not. But would God use those things? You better believe he would. Theologians call this the providence of God. It's a major teaching in the book of Esther. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. Providence is the means by which God directs all things both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, 
toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Do you get that, folks? History and creation are going somewhere. And God knows where they are going. And he is directing them according to his purpose. Providence is how God accomplishes his purpose in history. Sometimes he does that in over unmistakable ways. He splits a sea. He makes the sun stand still. But many times he does that in hidden secret ways. Providence is God's behind-the-scenes work in your life. It's God working in the background when you can't see him in the foreground. I like to explain it like this. It's the difference between going to a symphony and a play. If you've ever been to a symphony, I've only gone because my wife is trying to help me be more cultured, okay? If you've ever gone to a symphony, the conductor is a prominent part of the whole performance. In fact, maybe the most dramatic part. And no one who goes to the symphony thinks that all of those instruments with different abilities and all of those musicians could be moving towards the same movement in the music without the presence of someone who's directing them. He's very notable. He's very present. On the other hand, when you go to a play, it's a completely different thing, isn't it? In many ways, the play is more complex than even the symphony is. You have lighting, and you have sets, and you have actors, and you have dialogue, and you have acts and scenes, and all of these things are moving together in seamless harmony. But do you see the director? No. He's behind the scenes. But only a fool would go to a play and assume that all of those intricate actions could happen without the presence of a director. And ladies and gentlemen, history is moving towards a goal. And a choreography in detail that is almost uh, blowing to the human mind. And only a fool could look at history and see the absence of a director. God may be behind the curtain, but he's present. And he works in human history through providence. He prefers to stay behind the curtain many times. Act number one, background. Crown or queen and providence made sure that happened. Act number two in the story, we label tension. And someone would shout, construct the gallows. The tension of the story enters through Haman's plot. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman the Agagite and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? And it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. 
Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, why wouldn't Mordecai bow? This was not an act of worship. He probably bowed and did this same reverence in the sight of the king. Why wouldn't Mordecai bow? Well, as we mentioned earlier, there was a very old grudge between the people of Mordecai and the people of Haman. Haman was an Amalekite. The Amalekite were the first people to attack the children of Israel when they came out of Egyptian slavery. In 1 Samuel 15, God gave his commentary on the Amalekites when he ordered Saul to destroy them. Saul was supposed to end the conflict, but he didn't. Centuries later, here we are, centuries later, and God's people will pay the price. That's why Mordecai would not bow to an Amalekite. And that's why the Amalekite Haman was so full of rage, because one low-level employee would not bow to him and reverence him. Haman was a proud anti-Semite. And there's a lot of that going around these days. God is not the only one who works behind the scenes. Can I remind you of that? There's another presence. Satan is happy to work behind the scenes too. God has promised to bless the Jewish people. He promised the Messiah would come through the Jewish people. So Satan hates them. And he has tried to destroy them multiple times throughout history. The hiss of the serpent was behind the hatred of of Haman, and by the way, it's behind so much of what is happening in the world today. There is an older grudge at work here, even in the grudge of the Amalekites and the Israelites. There is the grudge of Satan against God and his people. And the bloodlust of Haman is being seen in our day as a new generation of Jewish people is being targeted. And by the way, God won the day in Esther's day and he will win the day in our day. Look at verse 7. It's a key verse, though often overlooked in this uh, book. In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month, Adar. What happened here is Haman has decided, according to verse 6, to destroy all the Jewish people. So he is going to cast the lot to see when he will destroy the Jewish people, when he will use his power to do so. Now, we read in verse 7, it was the first month of the year. They cast lots, and the lots came up for the twelfth month of the year. Now, the lot was similar to our dice, though they didn't use them to gamble. They used them to consult the gods. And when Haman threw the dice, if I could say it this way, it came up double sixes. The longest possible time. Satan may throw the dice, but God knows how to load them. (laughs) Satan may cast the poor, but God knows which numbers need to come up on the poor. And he superintends in all of this. In the remainder of the chapter, Haman goes to the king. King, there's a group of people who keep their own laws and won't keep your claws. We need to put an end to them. And if you do, I give you 10,000 talents of silver. Remember, the king was absolutely broke. So he signed an order for the genocide of the Jewish people so he could enrich his coffers. Politicians never change. Now, was what Haman did evil, wicked, satanic? You better believe it. Was it evil for the king to sign the death warrant of an entire people group for a little bit of money? Yes, it was evil. 
But is God going to use it? Yes. I like what Joni Erickson Tata said. God often, uh, I'll, I'll let me get it right, God often permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And don't ever mistake that. Something has happened in your life and it was wicked and evil. You say, did God do that? Absolutely not. God is not the author of sin. God cannot be tempted with sin. God did not ordain it. But God often allows what he hates so he might accomplish something that he loves. Maybe something terrible happened to you. Some kind of accident. Maybe you have a disease or a physical impairment. Maybe someone abused you or sinned against you. Did God do it? No. Is God responsible for it? No. Can He use it? Yes. When the Bible says all things work together for good, it even includes the sins of people. He can work all things together for good. And the book of Esther is proof. So we see Haman's plot. Following Haman's plot is Mordecai's plea in chapter 4. The decree goes through all the land. Every nation sees it. Mordecai and all the Jewish people cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They weep and mourn. That is an appropriate response when you find out your people is about to be exterminated. In chapter 4, however, Esther is unaffected. Remember, she is still an undercover Jewess. She is living in the palace with all the comfort and pleasure that her life as queen affords her. She doesn't think that this decree really affects her. So she does nothing. In fact, when she gets words that her cousin Mordecai has covered himself in sackcloth and ashen and is making a production at the king's gates, she sends him a new wardrobe and says, you're embarrassing me. Would you stop it? Mordecai sends word. He says, Esther, don't you recognize that you're here for a purpose and that you should speak to the king and say something to him about this awful decree that he signed? Esther says, you don't know how it works, cuz. I haven't been in to see the king in 30 days. And uh, if he doesn't invite me and I walk into his presence and he refuses to extend his golden scepter, then all of his henchmen, his bodyguards, his hitmen, will take their axes and cut my pretty little head off my pretty little neck, and nobody wants that. I like my pretty little head. I can't do anything. My hands are tied. Look at chapter 4, the key verses of the book, verse 13. Familiar verses, wonderful verses. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou in thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. It's wonderful. Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't act, God's going to save his people some other way. But don't you think that you're going to get out of this alive? This is a statement of faith and also a strong warning. Esther, God is sovereign. He will providentially protect his people. He's made promises to us. He will keep those promises. Don't you worry about Haman having the final word, Esther. He will not have the final word. God will have the final word. He will deliver his people. 
But if you fail to act, you will pay the price for your passivity. Esther, God can use you, but God doesn't need you. Can I remind you folks, God doesn't need me, and God doesn't need you. Oh, he's a God of love and grace and mercy, and he wants to use each and every one of us, but he does not need us. None of us are irreplaceable. If Worth Baptist Church chooses not to obey God, not to love his word, not to win souls, make disciples, and reach the world, God will find another church in another place that will. None of us are indispensable, not even the queen. But while God is sovereign, and while he will accomplish his purposes, he does use people to accomplish them. Don't miss this. God doesn't need me, but he has designed the world in such a way that he does need somebody. He uses means. And if God is going to use somebody, I'd like for God to use me. And if he's going to use a church, I'd like for him to use Worth Baptist Church. If he wins in the end, then I'd like to be on the winning side, not the losing side. How about you? Esther, you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, everything that has happened in your life was to get you here. The good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly. It was all to get you to this place at this time. This is your time, Esther. This is your place. Christian, can I remind you that we didn't just get where we are in Fort Worth, Texas in 2023. We didn't just get here. We were brought here by a sovereign God. I like what one writer said, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift, that's why it's called the present. This is our time. This is our place to do something for the one who's done everything for us. Relatively speaking, he's put all of us in the palace, hasn't he? And if you don't believe that, go on a mission trip sometime. He has put all of us in the palace. And some of us need to figure out that we haven't been put in the palace to enjoy the palace. We're not here for us. We're here for him. So this is our time to get serious for God. This is our time to take a stand to win a soul. We have been placed in the palace for such a time as this. Say, how can you be confident of that, Pastor? Because such a time as this is the only time we are guaranteed to have. So we better make the most of it. Look at her answer in verse 15, and I love it. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai to answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. There's that courage, young ladies. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's get God in on this situation. And whether he extends the scepter or he doesn't extend the scepter, I'm going to do what God has placed me here to do. Whether I succeed or fail, live or die, and God give us that kind of courage and faith in our day, in our time. Esther's. Plan, chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. I won't take the time to go through it. She goes to the king. He does hold out the golden scepter. What do you want? 
She says, oh, I want, okay, is for you and your right-hand man to come home with me to dinner tonight. Now, guys, this is genius. She's not just pretty. She's an intellect. What does this king like more than he likes anything else in all the world? A good feast, a proper party. The way to this man's heart is through his stomach, and most men are like that, by the way, okay? So it happens just like that. The king and Haman go to a feast at Esther's house. Uh, He's had all the food, and he's drank to his heart's content. They've come to the end of the evening, and finally he says, Esther, what is it that you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And we don't know how it happened, but something in Esther's spirit said, this is not the right time. And Esther says, I better hold back. And Esther says, what I really want, O king, is for you and Haman to come back to my house tomorrow night. And little does she know that that night will make all the difference in the world. Uh, This particular scene closes with Haman's pride. He leaves the feast, and he is too big for his britches. His head has grown three hat sizes. He said, the queen had a private feast, and it was just me and the king. I am big stuff. But guess who he meets on the way home from Esther's house? Mordecai. And guess what Mordecai won't do for the man who's too big for his britches? He won't bow. And Haman is more furious than ever. He goes home and vents to his wife. I have all the respect in all the land, and I get to go to private dinners at the queen's house with only the king. But this little Jewish man won't bow to me. And the wife says, I'm so sick of your belly aching and complaining. If you can't wait till the 12th month, then do something about it. Build a gallows and hang this man, Haman, on those gallows. And that very night, he sends his servants out to build a 60-foot-tall gallows. And by the morning, he thinks Mordecai will be hanging on it. Tension. Construct the gallows. The last act of the play we could call... Resolution. It's always good when there's a good resolution. Someone would say, celebrate the victory. Now, we're going to have to go quickly here. I love this story, and I've taken too long telling it tonight. Uh, In chapters 6 and 7, we see the disgrace of Haman. And I'll just have to give you the Cliff Notes version of this. Years before, Mordecai had unearthed an assassination plot against the king. He told it to Esther, and the conspirators were caught. But Mordecai was never given a reward. Well, as the king goes home from his feast at Esther's house, guess what? He can't sleep. He's got a case of divine insomnia. And that's what it was. And he says, I need something to put me to sleep. Get me the driest, dustiest old book we have in our volume. Get me the Chronicles of the King and read it to me and put me to sleep. And wouldn't you know, out of all the chapters and all the history of the Persian Empire, they just so happened to open to the chapter where Mordecai the Jew uncovered an assassination plot against the king. And the king asked his men, was anything ever done for this man? Was he ever given any kind of reward? No king, nothing was ever done for him. By now it's the early hours of the morning. So he says, do I have any of my servants who are out there in the king's court? I need somebody to help me to make sure this man gets the honor and recognition that he deserves. And they said, well, it just so happens, king, 
that there is one of your servants who's out in the king's court who was looking for an early audience. It's your right-hand man. It's Haman. And you know why Haman's there, don't you? Because he's going to ask the king to put Mordecai to death and hang him on the gallows that he and his servants had been building all night. So uh, Haman comes in and the king asks an open-ended question. What should the king do for the man whom he delights to honor? And like I told you, Haman's big for his britches. Who else would the king like to honor but me? Here's what I think you ought to do, king. You ought to take your robe and put it on him and take your crown and put it on him and let him have your horse and your chariots and let there be a royal parade right through the capital city and let one of your servants go in front and say, this is what the king does for the man that he delights to honor. And the king says, Haman, that's a great idea. Do it for Mordecai. And wouldn't you have loved to be at that parade and see the look on Haman's face as he leads that chariot and says, this is what the king does for the man who he delights to honor. He goes home after that parade and he talks to his wife about it. She says, things are not looking good for you, pal. I hate to tell you. And right at that moment, there's a knock on the door. It's time to go to the feast at Esther's house. Esther has the finest food for the king, and Mordecai enjoys it all, but I think he's pretty nervous by this time. The king asks again, Okay, queen, what would you like me to do for you? I'll give you up to half the empire. And now the spirit says, Go for it. King, you didn't know this, but I'm a Jew. And your right-hand man, Haman, is a wicked man who signed a death warrant for our entire people. And king, I think you ought to do something about it. And this king is so furious and mad, he leaves the room. He can't stand to be in the presence of Haman any longer. While he's gone, Haman starts begging the queen for his life. He gets a little too cozy and comfortable with the queen. He falls on her couch. And just at that moment, guess who walks back in? The king. And it looks like Haman is trying to make a move on the king's wife. And the king says, you know those gallows you had built for Mordecai the Jew? You're hanging on them tonight, pal. And Mordecai was disgraced. Excuse me, Haman was disgraced and destroyed. That's the kind of God we serve. God didn't do any miracles, no Red Sea splitting, no sun standstill, just his normal providential work. And he turned evil to good, death to life for his people. The disgrace of Haman. The next part of this is the decree of Xerxes. They send out another decree throughout all the land that says the Jews can arm themselves and the king will help them. They can fight for themselves. In chapter 9, you see the defeat of Israel's enemies. Not only were the people uh, victorious, but all of the anti-Semites in the entire empire were defeated. When the story opened, the people of God were oppressed and poor. When the story is over, they are in positions of power and they are wealthy. Esther, a Jew, is the queen. And Mordecai, a Jew, is the prime minister. Now, I know we've gone through a lot of territory here. But I need you to look at chapter 9, verse 15, or you won't understand God's providence at all. Look at chapter 9 and verse 15. After all of this had happened, for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day also of the month Adar, and slew 300 men at Shushan, but on the prey they laid not their hand. 
But the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew of their foes 70 and 5,000, but they laid not their hands on the prey. Now look, um, I can't find it, so I'm just going to tell you what happened. What happened was the Bible says that there was such joy throughout the Jewish people all throughout the empire that the people of the empire made themselves Jews. Think about that. They converted to Judaism. They put their faith in the true and living God. That's what it means. And you'll find the verses later, and you'll know that I was telling you the truth and not lying to you, all right? Now, remember how the story opened with a king displaying his wealth and his glory to the nations. 127 provinces. How does the story end? With a greater king displaying his wealth and glory to the nations. And the servants of the lesser king put their faith in the greater king. Now, here's the point. Providence has a purpose. Everything God does moves towards one reason that the nations might know how great and glorious he truly is. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand why God allows in your life what he allows. God's providence is displayed for God's purpose. God's providence is not at work just to give us a comfortable, safer, healthier life. God's providence is at work in our life so his glory might be displayed and the nations might put their faith and trust in him. And sometimes we have to suffer to do it. All of God's providence is running towards a purpose and his people are to run towards that purpose too. That's what the book of Esther is all about. Let me just read the takeaways and we'll go tonight. Number one, God is always at work, even when he seems passive, hidden, and silent. I love what Tozer said. We need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul, closer than our most secret thoughts. You may think he's hidden and absent and far away, but I can promise you he is closer to you right now than your closest friend. And he is at work. And he is there. And when you can't see his name, you can trust his hand. Number two, the providence of God justifies courage, not complacency. Some people think that if God is sovereign and working all things providentially according to his will, then why get involved? Jesus is going to come back. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ. No need for me to risk my pretty little head for it. No, no, no. The providence of God is motivation for courage, not complacency. Again, if God is going to win then don't you want to be on the winning side? Let me ask you, which athlete plays harder and puts his body on the line more regularly? The athlete who plays for a losing team with a bad coach who believes he's not going to win 
Or the athlete who plays for a great team, who has a great coach who knows that that coach is going to put him in the right position if he'll run the play. Which one's going to play harder? The second, every single time. Now, here's the thing. We don't understand all the plays that the coach calls in our life. Sometimes he asks us to go places for his purposes that we would never go. He allows our parents to die when we're young. He allows our people to be the targets of an extinction plot. He allows things we would never allow. But our God is undefeated. And history is going exactly where he wants it to go. We can always see that. We can always feel it. We can always sense it. But we can trust it. And because your God sovereignly works all things together for good and together for his glory, have courage. And put your pretty little neck on the line. Because if you lose, you win. And if you win, you win. We need some people with the courage of Esther in our day to see what God is doing in this world and to say, if I perish, I perish, but I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this, and I'm going to do what he called me to do. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book of the Bible. I love it. I hope some of our folks will go home and read it tonight. Thank you for your providential work. Thank you that there is a book in the Bible that tells us that in those seasons where we can't see you or sense you, you are there and you are working. We often go through those seasons and we need that reassurance. And oh God, help us to have the faith and courage of Mordecai and Esther to recognize this is our time and this is our place. And with courage, we need to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.